Well, brethren, if you would take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts and chapter 2. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 1 through 13, Lord willing, as we make our way into what is a monumental chapter in, in the history of the church of Jesus Christ. Well, before we read the passage, <clears throat> let's ask for the Lord's help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to be servants who are ready to listen to Your voice. We come, O Lord, seeking Your direction by the power of the Spirit to both understand and live out the truth of the Gospel. Father, we pray that You would minister to us in our hearts. You would cheer our souls with the great news of the triumph of Christ. And we pray that You would teach us much of Yourself of your character, of your ways. And we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you are able, would you stand for the reading of God's holy word? <clears throat> Again, we're looking at Acts 2. I'll read verses 1 to 13. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all gathered in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, in the parts of Libya, belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others, mocking, said, They are filled with new wine. Well, thus far, God's Word. Brethren, please be seated. Last week, we noticed that the apostles were living in the in-between, the days after the ascension of Jesus, before the outpouring of the Spirit. And as they watched Jesus depart and then waited on the Spirit, they prayed and studied Scripture, the same things we are to do in our in-between. However, unlike the gap between Pentecost and Christ's return, the early church does not wait long before power comes from on high. I'll give you something of the timetable. Jesus, remember, ascends 40 days after the resurrection, which is the third day after Pentecost. And Pentecost, which is derived from a Greek word meaning 50th, referring to the Jewish Feast of Weeks, it was 50 days after Passover. So roughly a week has gone by as we begin chapter 2. And then the promise of Christ, the baptism of the Spirit comes 
to now equip the church with new power to proclaim the mighty works of God. And clearly Pentecost is tied to Christ's exaltation as King. Now, brethren, as we begin this study of what took place at Pentecost and the signs accompanying the Spirit's descent, we enter into deep theological waters. And you will have to engage your brain here. I want to tell you that up front because loads of Old Testament concepts and themes that Jesus mentioned are finding their fulfillment right here. Further, what happens at Pentecost has become a firestorm of controversy in the church, with some highlighting the individual experience of the early church and trying to make individual parallels today. Indeed, there's been much discussion about whether the experience of the apostles receiving the Spirit in a twofold pattern, conversion and then spirit baptism, whether that's normative for the life of the church. In other words, are we first converted and then later baptized with the Spirit? Or is what happens here a unique, redemptive historical moment? Now, I'll I'll tip my hand already and argue that this is totally unique. The apostolic age as it dawns is unique. It's obvious that we're transitioning from the old to the new covenant era. Indeed, something monumental is happening as Jesus conquers on the cross, is raised in power, ascends on high, and He is the God-man, now exalted over all, is paving the way for everything that sin is broken to be repaired. Sin, as you well know, brought death, ushering us into an age where everything falls apart. And some of you are thinking, you have no idea. There's rebellion, futility, disease, sickness, and ruin. And yet Christ has come to die for us and save us. Christ pictured restoration with His miracles, but now He ushers in a new day when new creation starts. Jesus is, and this is important language to hang on to, the first fruits of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15. The first sign that death is defeated, paving a way for us to be raised bodily, and now He gives the first fruits of the Spirit, Romans 8.23. A new era of spiritual peace, joy, love, and power rescuing us from old creation's disordered decay and death. What's happening here is a decisive moment in the history of redemption because we're moving from the days of anticipation to the days of fulfillment. Now as we come to our text, we're going to see three things. At least I think we're going to see three things. It'll depend on how long it takes me to lay that out for you. We're going to spend a lot of our time in our first two points. And if I I notice that you're getting really antsy and overwhelmed, I'll just stop. Uh, The coming of the Spirit. I want you to see that first in verses 1 to 3. Again, a lot of time here on first points 1 and 2. We initially read in verse 1, when the day of Pentecost arrived. Now, two things are noteworthy right out of the gate. First, what is Pentecost? Well, it's a Jewish feast called the Feast of Weeks. 
And what's the significance of the Spirit being sent at this time? Well, in Leviticus 23, the Feast of Weeks was established by God as one of those three times a year every Jewish male was to come to the tabernacle and to celebrate God's faithfulness. The feast is also called the Feast of Harvest in Exodus 23, where the people would bring the first fruits of their labor of what they had sown in the field. So they gathered in Jerusalem and celebrated God's faithfulness, that He had made their crops start to come up, and they had the, the first ripe things showing them that a harvest is coming, and then they trusted Him for His provision throughout the whole of the growing season that they would then bring in a full harvest. What a fitting day that is for Christ to send His Spirit in power. For the idea here is the great harvest of souls has begun. The day the prophets proclaimed when the salvation of God would reach to the end of the earth, it has arrived. So the Spirit comes, again whom Paul calls the first fruits, a link to this idea of the Feast of Weeks. And it indicates to us that the days of blessing are here. The days of blessing have dawned upon the people of God. Or to use Jesus' language, the fields are white for harvest. And then, of course, Jesus will describe the last day as a great harvest. So the Spirit comes and the faithfulness of God is being celebrated. A harvest has begun according to the promise of God. And there is assurance that what God has began, a harvest of souls, will finish. Yes, we're presently groaning, awaiting the renewal of all things. We're all waiting on the redemption of our bodies. But the Spirit of Christ is bringing resurrection power to God's people. Power to raise the dead. Power to melt hard hearts. Power to proclaim Christ in a hostile world. Power to sing King Jesus. Build His church and the gates of hell not prevailing against it. Satan's hold on the world has been broken. That's what's being indicated here. And then there's a second thing to note. The ESV translates verse 1 as the day of Pentecost arrived. That's a possible way to do it, but the word translated arrived is better rendered was fulfilled. Luke uses the exact same word in his gospel in Luke 9.51 to indicate a major shift in Jesus' ministry. It says this, when the days were fulfilled, same word, for Jesus to be taken up, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. You see, just as there was a sovereignly appointed time for Jesus to move to Jerusalem, to begin that climactic moment where He would die for us on the cross, that that's all fulfilling God's plan, and He would redeem us through His death and resurrection, so there is now a sovereignly appointed time for a new age to dawn and to see the Spirit be given by the risen Christ. In other words, the great harvest prophesied by the Old Testament has now come. And that's what the Feast of Harvest pictured. It's fulfilled. The day of redemption is here. And that will be Peter's exact understanding when he starts to preach at Pentecost, talking about the arrival of the last days. You can already peek to verse 17 of chapter 2, and you'll see he starts, and in the last 
days. The promises of God have come. Now, beloved, as we look back to this moment, we should draw tremendous encouragement. As the Feast of Weeks celebrated God's faithfulness, we too should celebrate God's faithfulness. Why? Because the hope of forgiveness, the hope of renewal at the level of the heart, the hope of deliverance from the devil, of deliverance from the curse, it has come. God had said His Spirit would rest on a shoot from Jesse's stump coming from the line of David, and that this son of David would bring world-transforming effects. Well, beloved, it is happening right now. All of God's promises are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And as the victorious Christ pours out the Spirit, He is making the church taste the tidal wave of victory. Let me try to paint the picture for you as though what happens at the cross and resurrection ascension is like this massive spiritual earthquake. And the tsunami waves of blessing are now going out. That's the picture. What's going to change? The church will now have nearness to God in a new way. They'll be made the very temple of God. They'll be united to Christ in victory and peace and the hope of glory. Every promise the prophets proclaimed is dawning. And maybe this idea is underappreciated by us because all we've known as New Covenant Christians is this new era. But you've got to think of this like the Old Covenant people seeing every hope arrive. We began Luke's Gospel, Volume 1 of Luke's work. Remember, this is 2nd Luke, the book of Acts. We began Luke's Gospel with Anna and Simeon waiting for the consolation of God's people. Waiting for a second exodus. And now, as 120 people prayed and waited... They don't just see Jesus arrive, Jesus in humiliation, Jesus bear the curse. They are now seeing the days of power when the Spirit, who is, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, the deposit or the guarantee of our inheritance when He has now come. It means God has been faithful. It means God will be faithful. The rescue mission won't stop until every believer is at home with the Lord. Or think of it this way. As the Gospel now comes in power, the very power of the Spirit, here we are, three continents away, 2,000 years away, seven time zones away, and a bunch of Gentiles. And the Lord is reaping a harvest of His people. What an exciting thing. And how faithful is our God? But then see with me, as all these believers are together in one place, they experience signs of new creation. There are three of them. Two in this point. Verse 2, first they suddenly hear something. There came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Now, since the sound is from heaven... It's obvious to them that it's a supernatural thing. And it sounded like wind, but it wasn't wind. So what was it? Well, rushing wind had been assigned to Elijah in 1 Kings 19 of God's very presence. And that's what it means here, but it's specifically the third person of the Godhead 
the Spirit. So God the Holy Spirit is present. And we can't miss the ambiguity of the word wind. That's not going to be readily apparent to you in the English. But in both Greek and Hebrew, the word for wind or breath is the same word as the word for spirit. Panuma in Greek and ruach in Hebrew. And the Bible has played up this ambiguity in a number of places. One of them would be John 3. Jesus is talking about the new birth. And He tells us that you must be born again. And He says this, The wind, the panuma, blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the panumatos, the Spirit. And we see something similar when the Lord took Ezekiel in a vision out to a valley of dry bones and had him preach. What a weird thing that must have been. He's preaching to a graveyard. But as he preaches to a people dead in sin, what happens? The bones come together. Sinews attach the bones. Skin is laid over the bones. But there was yet no wind or breath or spirit in them. Same word. So the Lord tells Ezekiel, prophesy the Ruach, the Spirit. And they came to life just as God had breathed life into Adam in Genesis 2-7 so that He became a living being. You see, what does this whole all picture here in Acts chapter 2? It pictures the presence of the Spirit to bring new life. The Spirit is making things fruitful. In the imagery of Isaiah, the life-giving Spirit is restoring dry ground to make God's people fruitful. And then alongside the audible phenomenon, there was something seen. Verse 3, And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one. Like wind, fire is a frequent sign of the presence of God. A pillar of fire leading God's people. Fire coming down on Mount Sinai. The Lord bringing fire to consume the offering on the altar in the tabernacle and temple. It all indicates God is present. But what does it mean here that each believer is marked with a little miniature pillar of fire? It says, unlike the Old Testament days when God uniquely dwelt in the temple, God now by the Spirit is indwelling each believer. Jesus had told the Samaritan woman, the hour is coming when worship won't happen just at the temple in Jerusalem. Why not? Because Jesus is the meeting place for God's people. Jesus is the temple. And anyone in Christ is the temple indwelt by the Spirit. We are the temple of God. And all the distance the temple communicated in the Old Testament with its walls and different rooms and curtains is over. There's immediate nearness to God through Christ by the Spirit. And the fact that there's fire symbolizing the Spirit's presence is also very significant. Jesus had promised that He would come baptizing in the Holy Spirit and fire. Now, what is fire a symbol of in the Old Testament days? Well, chiefly it's a symbol of judgment. 
Fire pictures the consuming holiness of God and how He burns away impurities. And we know part of the great harvest language of Jesus and the prophets indicated that there will be a fiery judgment where those who didn't produce fruit would be burned. While the Holy Spirit is bringing blessing and new life, we might say there's a dangerous side to the Holy Spirit. You don't want to get on the wrong side of the Spirit. He comes to kindle fire. He comes to purify. That's the fulfillment of Malachi chapter 3. Malachi spoke of a day when the Lord would come suddenly to His temple and He would come like a refiner's fire. Some of you know that Handel writes a hymn on this or an aria on this in his Messiah. He'll come like a refiner's fire. And what does refining fire do? It burns up what is false and it purifies what is true. But then Malachi asks the question in view of this image, who can endure the day of His coming? If God comes in fire, how can any of us stand? And brethren, we should feel the weight of that very significant question. God is holy and we are not. God hasn't changed. The book of Hebrews will tell us God is a consuming fire. And if God brings His all-consuming purity to us, what will we do? Sinners will be destroyed. And newsflash this morning, we're a bunch of sinners. We would be wiped out. So you should ask yourself the question as you read Acts 2, how are these believers still alive? How can the fire of the Holy Spirit dwell in them? Maybe you remember that moment when James and John got their mama to go ask Jesus, give us these special places in the kingdom. But do you remember how Jesus responded? He asked him a question. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? That's a weird question. In Luke's Gospel, Jesus went on to say that He had come to cast a fire on the earth and that He had a baptism to face. But how distressed He was until it was accomplished. What is He talking about? Jesus is talking about the cross. Before we can be baptized with the Spirit and fire, He must face a baptism of fire. He must face judgment in our place. He must quench the fires of the holiness of God that are calling for our damnation because we're sinners. He has to face God's judgment and satisfy that judgment, taking the curse away from us. Well, then clearing away our judgment, He can give the Spirit to us. The Spirit won't consume us because we've been purified as a fit place for the Spirit to dwell. We can have attachment to the living God and not die. Do you remember how often that comes up when you're reading the Old Testament and all the Levitical statements? Do this or, or you'll die. Do this or you'll die. Well, we can be attached to God and not die. All others will be consumed. But because of Christ, because He faced our condemnation, we don't get death, we get life. What an incredible truth. We can be in God's presence. We can have the living God residing in us. And we can survive. Not just survive, brethren. We can have an abundant life. All because of what Jesus has done. If that doesn't cause you to rejoice, I don't know what will. 
Yeah, it's true. We weren't there on Pentecost. We didn't hear the Spirit come like a mighty rushing wind. We didn't see the tongues of fire. But to use Paul's language, right now, dear friends, we are the temple of the living God. Cleansed by the blood of Christ, rescued from the fires of judgment, and we've been gathered and gifted new life in the Spirit. By the Spirit, we can cry, Abba, Father. By the Spirit, we can draw near to God. The blessings like a deluge of rain have come upon us in the Spirit. And it should excite us that we live in the days that we do. Peter mentions how blessed we are by saying in 1 Peter 1 that the angels long to look into the salvation we are experiencing. The prophets searching the Word were trying to understand the, the sufferings of Christ and the glories of Christ. You get to see it. You get to experience it. It's all for you and it should thrill your heart. Does it? And then secondly now, see with me. A continuing blessing. The curse reversed. And I can see already that this will be the second and last point. <clears throat> the curse reversed. The sight of tongues in the shape of fire now moves us to see or to hear about tongues that couldn't be seen but heard. Verse 4, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now much controversy has emerged over this gift of tongues. What exactly was it? Well, unlike some supposed modern expression of tongues, there's zero indication, first of all, that believers lost control of their normal faculties. Yes, they are speaking in other tongues, but they are not in some type of wild, ecstatic state. The fruit of the Spirit, among other things, is self-control, not the loss of all control. And we're about to see believers speaking intelligible things. This was not incoherent gibberish. Some type of the mumbling of a bunch of syllables that don't make sense together. No, what they were saying was not the result of study, some type of reflection on a foreign language. Nevertheless, as they're speaking to the people gathered in the city from many different places, each one of those people, verse 6, was hearing them speak in his own language. What does that mean? It means the Spirit of Christ enabled these believers to speak in real languages. Languages different from their own, but true languages nonetheless. Now, there's a sense in which some have called this a miracle of hearing, because the verb to hear is used three times in verses 6 to 11. But the initial emphasis in verse 4 is on a Spirit-enabled speech. It is a miracle of hearing, first because it's a miracle of speaking. Spirit-empowered ability to speak in foreign tongues. But what does it mean? Well, for one thing, it means the Spirit will strengthen the church, specifically the apostles, to engage in their mission. What did Jesus call them to do? To be witnesses of Him, once clothed in the Spirit's power, in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and unto the end of the earth where they're going to encounter all kinds of different language. And the book of Acts is moving on that paradigm. 
Jerusalem, Acts 1-7, Judea and Samaria, Acts 8-12, and to the end of the earth that is the center of the Gentile empire, Rome, Acts 13-28. And as the Gospel goes by the witness of the apostles into these outward circles like this, we might say that there are echoes of Pentecost as the Gospel moves into these new regions. In Acts 10, sorry, Acts 8, Acts 10, and Acts 19, we will see the Spirit fall on Samaritans and Gentiles. And it will use parallel language to the Spirit filling here. And on two of those occasions, Acts 10 and 19, we'll hear again of the gift of tongues. But the exact same language of tongues will be used there as here. And you're thinking, so what? Well... That means what's happening here at the initial baptism of the Spirit is echoing into those regions. In other words, the sign gift of the new era, tongues, remains speaking in intelligible foreign languages while also being united to the once-for-all redemption of Jesus Christ. This is a unique event. Now you know, I'm sure, that there's one other place in the Bible that it talks about tongues. 1 Corinthians 12-14. to 14. And some try to argue that the gift of tongues is different there than here. They listen to Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13, if I speak with the tongues of angels, and then they say, see, there are other tongues, there is some type of heavenly language used to speak mysteries in order to edify the individual. That view has so many problems I can't even start by talking about it. You can ask me about it later. But what I will say is that simply the word tongue, glossa in the Greek, other than describing the pink thing that resides in your mouth, is always talking about a known language. Here's the larger question. Why this gift? Why tongues? Why enable believers to speak in languages they don't know? What is going on here? Well, Luke does stress to us that at this feast in Jerusalem, verse 5, there were devout men from every nation under heaven. That is, from every nation in the known world throughout the Roman Empire, uh, Jews had come. And then Luke, in verses 9-11, to lists 15 different locations, each of which had a known Jewish population. And he, in, as he lists these nationalities... One puts it like this. It sweeps from east, Parthians, to west, Rome. From north, Asia, which is modern-day Turkey in this case, to south, Egypt and Libya. From island peoples in the center of the sea, Cretans, to desert people on the outskirts of the empire, Arabs. So, from everywhere. Every four corners of the earth, we might say. And then this includes both ethnic Jews and proselytites, verse 11. Proselytites are Gentiles by birth who had converted to the God of Israel. So to the scattered people of God who've been scattered by sin and disruption, as they're now standing in one spot, they hear unlearned Galileans, verse 11, telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And you're still thinking, didn't you ask a question? What does this mean? You had not got to that yet. I'm, I'm coming. Now, the fact that Luke offers a table of nations 
in verses 9 through 11 with all these different languages, and yet these people are hearing them in their own tongue. It marks a reversal of something that sin had broken. You may remember right after the table of nations in Genesis 10, an account in Genesis 11 of a people on the plains of Shinar refusing to do what God said to fill the earth. Instead, they decided to settle down, build a city, make a tower reaching to the heavens, the Tower of Babel. And why did they want to do it? To make a name for themselves. So over against God's command, man pridefully asserts himself. He boasts in his achievements. He wants to manifest his power. And what does God do in view of this massive hubris? He takes these people who had one tongue, who used the gift of common speech to rebel, and there at the Tower of Babel, He confuses their language so they can't understand one another, and He scatters them. This, friends, was the closing marker in the early chapters of Genesis, Genesis 1-11, to of everything that sin had ruined and judgment on mankind. Just think of Genesis for a second. Judgment is seen in the casting of Adam and Eve out of the garden, Genesis 3. Judgment is seen in the isolation of Cain and the fear that grips him, Genesis 4. Judgment is seen in death attending to everyone in Adam's line, Genesis 5, and he died, and he died, and he died. Judgment is seen in a coming flood to wipe out all mankind save Noah and his family, Genesis 6-9. A curse on Canaan, Genesis 9, and then this, the Tower of Babel, language confused, Genesis 11. It's a wretched reminder of everything that sin has corrupted. Everything in this world is broken. But now, Christ conquers sin and death. Christ throws down the devil having bound His power. Christ ascends on high as the second Adam, assuring us there's a way back. There's nearness to God. There's reconciliation. And now with the gift of the Spirit, the curse is reversed. What happened at Babel is temporarily undone. Confusion gives way to clarity. And those by the Spirit speaking in different tongues, yet bringing unity, are not asserting their pride. They're not building something for themselves to look at how great they are. They are telling the mighty works of God. The Lord is all the focus. He has done great things. And do you think of it this way? At Babel, man was trying to lift himself up to heaven. At Pentecost in Jerusalem, heaven is coming down to man. The Spirit come down from heaven sent by the risen Christ is bringing restoration that Christ has secured. Do you see the divine initiative in saving sinners? God is acting to rescue people. And we move from the Old Testament idea, if you move from Genesis 11, man trying to make his name great, to Genesis 12, God says to Abram, I will make your name great. That's an echo on purpose. And then God chooses a family, and He grows that family to 70, and He's going to choose a nation, Israel. But now what is God doing? We're not focused on one man, Abram. We're not focused on his family. We're not focused on one nation. The Spirit is falling that all nations 
would be rescued from sin. This is a signal that the Lord Jesus by His victory is creating a new humanity out of the alienated mass of men. New life in Christ brings redemption. And it's not just about the individual, it's a corporate people. Christ has died to save a people, the church. And all these believers, not just some of them, all of them are speaking with these foreign tongues. They aren't preaching. They are telling the mighty works of God. The vocabulary there is very important. But all of them are Spirit-filled and their actions aim to unite God's people, those of every nation, tongue, and tribe. You know, one of the things that the devil loves to stress is our differences. Differences of upbringing, of wealth, status, ethnicity, and so forth. And he uses all these differences to provoke us to mock one another. One man despises another man because he's from the wrong place. One woman mocks another woman because she doesn't wear the right clothes in the right season. One child insults another child because he's got the wrong color of skin. But right here, in the face of all these differences among men, language, ethnicity, location, the Gospel is bringing unity. Brethren, that's what the Gospel does. It takes a people divided in every conceivable way and it brings them together in the Lord Jesus Christ. And while this initial overturning of Babel is just a foretaste, the phenomenon of tongues doesn't keep happening in Jerusalem. Another reminder, this is a unique event. But it points to a new era of the Spirit. Your favorite prophet Zephaniah talked about this. I'm sure you have it memorized. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 9, he said, in that day, the day of redemption, the Lord will change the speech, the language. Same word used in Genesis 11. I will change the language of the people to a pure speech that all may call upon the name of the Lord and serve Him with one accord. In other words, the Lord will rescue a people, unite them together, and they'll have total unity in His service. Friends, we're getting a taste of that right now in this church. But what will glory be like when we are a gathered people from the four corners of the earth united to serve Christ? Shouldn't it drive you to strike down every attempt of the devil to bring disunity? Shouldn't it drive you to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace? Look at what the Spirit has brought together. Why would I dare aim to rip it apart? Shouldn't, shouldn't it lead you to start studying Hebrew now because you're going to have to speak it in heaven? No, that's, that's just a joke. Look at the amazing thing that our God has done. He's brought fullness of redemption in Christ and it's as though every single one of us has now become like an Old Testament prophet with unique intimacy with God. But even better, but even better, because we get to go like only the high priest could only go once a year, never without blood, right into the Holy of Holies. All of these blessings are being showered upon you. May it thrill your heart. Now, I'm sure that you still have many questions about what does all this mean? And Peter's going to preach about it. And we're going to spend quite a bit of time looking at Peter's sermon. But may at least you initially be encouraged. 
the Lord is overturning everything sin ruined. And I live in those days. And I get to see it. Praise God for that. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come in awe of You. We come marveling at all the ways You're bringing fulfillment to Your promises. And Lord, we, we never appreciate enough how faithful You are. Forgive us for failing to see all the ways Your faithfulness is great. But Lord, we do rise today to acknowledge that faithfulness and thank You that the long-awaited promise has come, Christ the Savior and the outpouring of the Spirit, to usher us into days of great intimacy where we are indwelt by You. Lord, make us to be a fit place for King Jesus to dwell, living in purity and enjoying the unity we have as the people of God. And we pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and all of God's people said, Amen.